Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, February the 15th. Well, happy to say that I'm back safely from Los Angeles and a different world there. I mean, COVID still exists, but it's a different feel than what we have here in Ontario. And I want to explain some of why that is as we move forward with two major stories. Obviously, Ontario lifting restrictions closer to the end of the month and certainly by the end of March, which seems forever away, but it isn't. We're talking six and a half weeks. And Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, enacting the Emergency Measures Act, and we'll tell you some of what that does and some of what has he documented on uh, mon in Monday's news conference, what it doesn't do. Dr. Zane Chagla with the latest on where we're going with COVID, why we need to boost the more vulnerable, and some of the madness uh, when it comes to travel, which I experienced uh, myself on Monday. And Marcus Kolga, the very latest, nobody better than him talking about Russia and Ukraine right now as well. The Toronto Today podcast, thank you for listening, by the way, to it, starts now. Let's start here uh, when it comes to the province. I, uh, Friday uh, afternoon, oh, I didn't get, I didn't get a chance to weigh in on uh, Snowmobile Gate, right? Colin DeMello from CTV says, Premier, and it's a little bit of a gotcha moment, and that's okay. If I had that information, I might ask him about it. Justin Trudeau was asked about cross-country skiing, and I weighed it. I cannot believe that's only four days ago now, not even, because we're talking about it early morning here on uh, 640 Toronto, but um, I just sort of shrugged my shoulders at that and thought, I guess there's some people that would be upset by it. We're all a little um, more easily rattled in the last few months thinking, oh, I thought I'd have my life back a little more uh, on, on its axis by now, and, and you don't, and that's frustrating. Um, I don't care if the guy's out on the snowmobile a couple hours. I want him working faster than he worked. I wanted Justin Trudeau working faster than he worked. And it's hard to say that these politicians won't survive this. It, a lot is survivable in politics. Jim Watson was going to retire anyway. Um, he wasn't running for mayor again in Ottawa. He wouldn't survive this. But when you watch movies and TV shows, you know how the mayor is usually, it's usually, the mayor is usually somebody that's been there like 30 years. You don't usually have a young, maybe sometimes you like the Batman, Chris, Christopher Nolan movies, before he got blown up at the, uh, at the, pit, at the football game, uh, when uh, Bane set the bomb off in the Dark Knight Rises, that that mayor was you know young and progressive. He's the guy that does that plays Yanko on the morning show, the weather guy, right? So, uh, but usually it's an older, grizzled veteran, and nobody likes to dump their municipal politicians. John Tory is going to get reelected this fall. We realize that no one's coming out of the woodwork to beat John Tory. Um, I think that's fairly obvious. You could debate, dispute what he's done well, what he hasn't done well. But oftentimes, municipal officials just, people don't want to change those spots. The higher up you go the political chain, we're happy to make some changes. We're happy to. And I'm going to get to that federally in just a minute. But I see yesterday, the, it, yesterday the morning was more about the provincial news. Um, and I was following it along from uh, various airports, including Denver, Colorado. That thing is miles away from the city. What are they thinking with that? Um, but the lifting of restrictions in Ontario, I know there's people that have opinions about it. We have to move away from using broad and blunt tools, and we have to be precise. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you were to say about somebody in the workplace. You know what? They're really precise. Well, that's, that's a good thing. There's not too many times that's a bad thing. Intensity can be good or bad. Um, be, having an even keel couldn't be good or bad. But then again, there's I've had bosses and bosses of bosses that have an even keel, and it takes them forty. It would take them forty-five minutes to order a salad at lunch. Like there's not a lot of decisiveness there. Politicians need to do that more and not be as calculating about what will the public think. And I worry that we're just in that era right now. And maybe it's the personalities, maybe it's the people, the parties. I think we've got a lot of that with all of Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, and Stephen Del Duca. How will this land with prospective voters instead of being true to ideals, instead of being true to people? Because people have ideals. There's people that don't want this moving forward. And I'll lay out some of what we're going to do in Ontario in case you missed it um, during the day yesterday. There's people that are scared, and we have to listen to them. Now, we can't cater to people who are scared. There's a big difference between listening and understanding and designing policy, as I've described it, that caters to the most frightened person on your street. We have to have a balance. 
this whole time we haven't had a decent balance about how we manage COVID in our existence. And we sure haven't since vaccinations. You've probably, if you've been hearing me for a couple of years, you know that I've, I wouldn't say that I've adapted um, or I wouldn't say that I've changed, but some of, of a, I suppose, uh, fair comment about adaptation is after you've been vaccinated. You feel different. You're not dodging this as much anymore. You know that they're meant to prevent severe illness, right? <laughs> and they do. Okay. So there aren't too many doubts about that. Um, but we don't have a do Let's do everything. Let's do nothing. We don't have that balance anymore. Dr. Anthony Fauci, south of the border, said something I was highly critical of in November when Omicron got on everybody's radar and people were, you know, doom and glooming it. Like, you know, my friend Bruce Arthur comes on the show from the Toronto Star. And I'll tell him when he gets back uh, from China. He's at the Olympics right now. He was wrong about Omicron. He was more wrong than right. Some of what he said would happen uh, has has happened. But a lot of what he, he worried about uh, has not happened. It hasn't materialized. A lot of what the, you know, big time uh, celebrity uh, doctors predicted would happen with Delta in the fall. I told you wasn't going to happen. And that didn't happen also. So, um, but Fauci was very much, we'll do anything and everything to defeat Omicron. Stop right there, man. That's not what we should be doing. We shouldn't be doing anything to defeat Omicron. We should be doing everything to defeat Omicron. This has to be about balance and nuance and thinking what's our opportunity cost here, there, and all these other policies if we do or if we don't. We know that that's true. Doug Ford was asked yesterday if there's been undue influence on him speeding up restrictions because of all the protests. And I had, I have to say, um, I, I agree with this answer here. Here's the premier yesterday. Despite the, the protesters, this plan was in place long before the protests uh, were, were out there. And uh, I wouldn't call them my, my supporters necessarily. I think it's a mixed a bunch of, of everyone down there. But at the end of the day, we need law and order. Uh, our country is at risk right now. It's not just happening here in Ottawa. It's happening in B.C. and Alberta, uh, New Brunswick. And I've been in conversations with all the premiers. Yeah, all that's right. All the premiers are talking. There's no doubt about that. And uh, and it is probably a mixed bunch of protesters that I don't think lean left, right, center, up the middle. I just don't see this. I've heard this described as alt-right protests. Well, you've got a mixed bag, so the alt-right might stand out to you. But there's an awful lot of people protesting in Ontario right now that are simply uh, working class. That, I mean, is that not patently obvious to you? And let me say this as well before I get to uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, and I was thinking about this so much over the weekend, talking to people from other countries. It was great to get that that lens. Sometimes you just got to step out of your own boots right now and realize, yeah, I might have this wrong. You see this from a different perspective. Um, you're not yammering on about it for three and a half hours a day with guests and audio and whatnot. So let, let's get a fresh eye, a fresh set of eyes on this. And, um, you know, one of my friends made the point that there's a lot of people painting. Well, it's not truckers. They're not truckers being there. And I'm like, I, they are truckers. They're, they have trucks. Who do you know that does? Do you know anybody that's not a trucker that has a transport truck? Whose trucks are they? The truckers' trucks. That's, <laughs> that's who they are. The problem is also for people that lean left, the truckers feel rejected by you. They feel rejected by sort of that laptop class of person. They don't think you've got much in common with them. And you're not telling them that they do by utterly and completely doing what the prime minister did that one day and glibly dismissing who they are and what the protest is all about. I mean, I shouldn't have to explain that, I wouldn't think. But it's become patently obvious that uh, that the truckers and those that are protesting. I know there's some bad people there. I know there's some people with terrible views and terrible opinions and, and that are all right. That are fine. Of course there are, but we, we are going to, we won't agree. We could argue about it for four hours as to whether that's the majority or not, but there has been this element. And I know this is true of this sanctimonious middle to upper class privilege that allows some of us, and I'll call myself out some of us to work at home and not listen to other people who can't and act like we've got all this moral virtue and we get our shopping delivered and we get our meals here. Well, that doesn't make us a better person. We've outsourced our risk to poorer people who can't afford the same amount of, of ability to outsource. 
We tell people to bring us food. We tell people to send us packages. People keep delivering the mail. If healthcare workers were protesting and blocking the Ambassador Bridge, if they were, if they were, you know that this lands differently. If you know that that's true. If, if warehouse workers, and I don't know where this one lands. I was thinking about this on the flight home. Warehouse workers say, we want sick pay. You know how that was a big thing in spring of 21, like almost a year ago? Let's get 10 days of sick pay. Well, we didn't. We never really got it. And then suddenly that left our radar a little bit. Once all a lot of us got vaccinated, we thought, huh, well, my danger's over. All I care about is my household. We didn't get 10 days sick pay for people who are sick. We thought, go get vaccinated, and then you won't get sick. Mostly that's true. But people get sick for a lot of different reasons besides COVID. Are we advocating for that as hard anymore? No, we ain't. And that's a problem also. The way I look at the Trudeau thing and the way I saw this yesterday was simply put, it's a considerable admission of failure by the federal government. You don't need special powers if you use your regular powers, okay? <laughs> if you're able to handle something on the Superman can fly, but if, uh, you know, if he was on the ground and couldn't stop a, a supervillain, then he goes, well, I'll just fly instead. But he doesn't need to do that if he's on the ground doing what needs to be done. And I don't know how this can be viewed as anything other than the federal government in concert with uh, failures, uh, by the, certainly by the municipal government and police force in Ottawa, and to a considerable extent, the premier of the province and, and the provincial government. This, is con this was a failure to act. They were nowhere they needed to be for the first 10 or 11 days. So I don't care who's snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, snowmobiling, curling, luging, um, you know, or, or, or I don't care if Doug Ford's on the third line for the Canadian men's hockey team later today against China. And I don't know the players very well, so he very well might be. He might have made the team. It's very possible. We don't have Connor McDavid there and Brad Marchand, so maybe that's very true. This is a fundamental failure by the federal government to do what needed to be done to avoid taking this step. Think about it in your own life. When we have to take unprecedented action, when we have to call some kind of emergency family meeting, when we have to go to crisis counseling for our marriage or our relationship with our son or daughter, it means that some steps were missed along the way. Who could argue that? Justin Trudeau is taking an unprecedented step here because the precedented stuff that he should have done was absent. It was void. It was null. It was it just vanished. It didn't happen. And there was a way to do this and a time period in which to do it. So I saw yesterday as nothing more. We can talk about the liberties that are being you know trampled upon. Some say some are and some aren't. OK, I'm not going to make this what it isn't. But it doesn't happen yesterday. That news conference that I'm listening to in the car coming back from Pearson does not happen yesterday. Um, and I heard some great calls from John Oakley on it. I thought John did a phenomenal job covering all the bases on it yesterday. It doesn't happen without falling down first. You don't have to take unprecedented action in any concept of your life unless you if you don't do the if you don't do the precedented things, you'll have to take unprecedented action. So I told you this quick story, um, but I, here's one thing I didn't emphasize uh, that I had uh, to, you know, obviously provide to go to L.A. on the weekend, Super Bowl and all that. Go to take a PCR test. I did that right at LAX. Um, I, had to, I had to get an Uber um, to go about 1.8 kilometers based on my uh, my watch and my maps on my phone because you just can't walk anywhere from most airports. You can't. Um, so I go get the PCR test easy nobody the nobody's there lined up but it cost me about 208 dollars canadian 155 us and uh and then um put it in the arrive can app now they never they did ask for proof of the test i will say that at pearson yesterday but then obviously i mentioned earlier got selected to um get a random i was randomly um as were the last uh, the next uh, 23 people behind me from my naked eyes to uh to get a uh, random rapid test awesome and then while we're filling in all this information where you need your passport number, your health card number, your address, uh, so much more than that, than just that, the eye color of my children, basically, um, as I'm almost done filling all that out. And this took maybe, maybe 11 minutes, and I'm already in the line for 20 minutes. This is after clearing customs. So it's about a 100-minute ordeal. It's not really an ordeal, but you get what I'm saying. It'll discourage people from traveling. That she hands me the rapid test. She's wearing a shield, a gown, and everything. She hands me the rapid test and says, uh, just take this home and do it. 
I'm like, I'm not even asking. I'm not even going to ask, what if I don't? I'm going <laughs> because I'm a perfectly healthy person. I have no symptoms right now. I just showed you a PCR test from Saturday. Just insanity. I don't know what we're doing. And uh, to some extent, neither does our next guest. He's been talking about this for uh, quite some time. Infectious diseases physician at St. Joe's in Hamilton. First of all, you and I could have had a lot of conversations on the plane uh, about all this. And then we would have been through the exact same. I can't be the first person telling you what a show, if you will, it is um, to come back uh, from a, a foreign country into Canada right now. I can't be the first person to tell you what a charade it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous, right? You know, just talking about this story, right? You're a healthy, asymptomatic person that has traveled you know, somehow this PCR and, you know, taking a rapid test home is going to protect us. <laughs> if you are, you know, the, the, the irony of all of this is like, say tomorrow you develop symptoms and, and you're not a healthcare worker and I assume you're relatively healthy. You can't even get a test locally, right? Like, you know, if you were a Canadian that developed symptoms, you can't even get a test locally. Uh, but yet, you know, we're so fixated on these people coming over the border uh, as the cause of all of our problems. But, you know, there's a lot of COVID locally in Canada that we're, we just seem to be shrugging our shoulders about and saying, that's not a problem. It's the airport. That's the big deal. It feels like since the vaccinations were readily available, so let's say it's last like late April, early May, we started to realize this probably wasn't fully about access anymore. If you wanted the vaccine, you could get the vaccine. Maybe I'm maybe I'm early on that. Maybe it's more late May, early June, around hmm. the long weekend. Um, and and remember, we're all still shut down with the stay-at-home order, with uh, even outdoor activities being pre- prevented, lasted until, I want to say, very late in May, early June. Even if all that's true, Dr. Chagla, even if I have my timeline right, it did feel like um, we were we were still moving forward in, into a, a world that the, the recommendations should just not be one-size-fits-all, and yet we're still doing a lot of one-size-fits-all health recommendations for our society, and that's what's frustrating people. Absolutely. I mean, you, can you imagine, you know, you, you were saying, you know, people were getting second doses. I think so the second dose started rolling out more aggressively in May. And by, you know, July, I think most people had access to their second dose. You know, there's a little bit of uptake needed in the summertime, but, but you know, appointments were there and, you know, they were walk-in friendly. Um, we, I remember, we didn't get guidance in terms of how fully vaccinated people can interact indoors with each other without a mask until the early summertime. And, you know, it was ludicrous because you were watching the NBA in the United States at the time Mm -hmm. with fully packed stadiums. And meanwhile, we were sitting in Canada saying it's too dangerous to sit, you know, beside someone who is two doses of vaccine uh, because, you know, there is still a risk there. And, and, you know, again, we've been really really unfortunate that risk-based messaging has just not been a part of this. Um, yes, you know, Omicron in the last couple of months, there were some needs for adjustment. I totally agree. You know, there was a lot of health, there was a lot of transmission, but in the background of all of this, this de-escalation, the ability for us to actually, you know, embrace what the vaccines actually did really wasn't front and center. And, and unfortunately, I think we're paying for it now in, in a lot of the discourse, as well as the fact that, you know, governments are now having to make these decisions to say it's time to go back to normal because of the fact that, you know, they can't live in this state of risk. But there's a lot of pushback on that. It's Dr. Zane Chagla joining us on Toronto today. That's so well said. Um, and and I look and I say, we, we hear through these protests, and we won't go there specifically, but I hear, end the mandates, end the mandates. And I'm thinking, the vaccine mandates and the mass mandates are two totally different things. I don't like the idea that someone is classed as an anti-vaxxer if they say, well, what's the justification for putting on a mask to enter a restaurant and then take it off once you're sitting down? That doesn't make someone an anti-vaxxer because you're talking and eating with you know, your face and you can see other people. And I'll tell you this, I'm not, I'm not all for totally ending all um, the, yeah. the the vaccine um, mandates. I, I don't agree with totally ending even all indoor mask mandates, depending on where we are. My father-in-law's in long-term care. We should we should absolutely keep things like that in place. But but I guess I don't understand the justification for ending vaccine mandates for inessential, non-essential indoor activities. I, I think there's still a place, and I think some businesses will still keep them in place. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to recognize. I mean, I was I was someone that was very for vaccine mandates at the, when mm-hmm. they came out, and I think the evidence really at the time with two doses and Delta, you know, suggested that the odds of someone walking into a facility with you know, uh, vaccine and uh, and having COVID is much less. The odds of them transmitting in that facility is much less. We are seeing with Omicron that two doses of vaccines, you know, in someone that hasn't had an infection probably does get down to about the same efficacy as someone that's unvaccinated in getting infection or in having infection. Three doses, it does boost it a little bit to 60 and then eventually to 40 percent. Two doses plus having Omicron probably boosts it a lot. But there's just so much of this murkiness now. And I think this is where mm-hmm. it comes from. Even the unvaccinated population, some of them got Omicron. Some of them do have natural immunity, which means they are also, you know, partially vaccinated in that sense. We have data from the U.S. and, and Qatar that really does suggest there is protection there. And so, you know, when all of this murkiness gets there and it's really like, you know, probably 5% of people in this in this country are truly immunologically naive to, to uh, COVID, um, you know, it does get, you know, to the point of what what are we doing for this 5% in that sense? And I think, again, you know, the, the thought of vaccine mandates, increasing uptake of vaccines, I think we've we've tapped that, that keg to the end, yeah. of it, right? Like, you know, I don't think people are going to come for a vaccine anymore because they can't go to a restaurant. Um, so, you know, I, I, that, I think that there is legitimate reasons. And, I, you know, this is that part of that public trust, right? You want governments to be looking at that and you want governments to be saying, you know, this needs to be in place now because the data shows it. But you equally need that trust to say, OK, you know, the data is not supporting this right now. We're going to step back on this and, and think about it when the time comes or a new vaccine comes, et cetera, that, you know, we'll use those tools again, not necessarily just, you know, have them on forever and keep escalating on that. You can't keep people in a perpetual state of emergency or, or high concern or panic. And and I think history will show, like, I, I'm, I'm with you. I would document that I would have supported the mandates for two reasons. One, I think you created consumer confidence to go to restaurants. To, I know just taking the go train down to one of the Canada soccer games. I'm on with my kids, and I'm like, I feel better uh, knowing that, that, that there's a mandate for the vaccine and that people are required to wear the mask. But you can only... It was only meant to be a short period of time, and we're talking now. We're we're going to be soon, like eight nine months removed from a lot of the. We were going to hit a, a wall, a dosage wall in the summer, and the mandates helped us maybe push some people over that hurdle. Yeah, absolutely. They they set their purpose. You know, they uh, you know again, masks and, and vaccines have helped us. You know, other than this last couple of months, really get back to a lot of the normalcy that we wanted. You know, they've done their work. Again, you know, we do have to reflect on how much we want to push policy and, and whether or not we want to be proactive and positive as compared to more punitive, because that does push people away. Again, as a clinician who's trying to advise people on vaccination, it's a lot easier when their backs aren't up with uh, with a mandate as compared to it's a lot harder if their backs aren't mm-hmm. up with a mandate as compared to someone who. Um, who can do this proactively with a, you know, a, a discussion on risks and benefits. Um, and again, you know, if it's not offering a huge amount for us at, at this point in time, I think we can talk about, again, using it when the time comes, not necessarily just having it in place perpetually. And, you know, all of these things need to have dates to sunset. I think that gives people confidence. Uh, you know, we're not going to live with masks forever. We're not going to live with vaccine mandates forever. And, and again, when mm-hmm. the data shows that, we've done our due diligence that, you know, society is much safer Then we really do have to have serious discussions about when these things can end. I got a couple of quick ones. One, um, our, our, our ICU numbers have improved dramatically, um, 385 yesterday. And for people, I think this is important to emphasize the vast majority of, of people like yourself, who I asked last week, I kind of took an informal poll privately and they tell me around this time of year, there's always 250, 270, 280 people in ICU. That's just that's just life. And uh, yeah, so maybe yeah, we have an extra maybe we have an extra hundred um, or so. But what gets what gets to the community that needs the booster the most? Where are we falling short with either marketing or a campaign or or people like me or politicians saying you don't understand like you like you laid out at the start the two is not as protected as you need to be here if you're 60 plus or if you've got other health issues yeah i mean that's that's probably the biggest thing right you know i get there's been a lot of confusion with boosters we let everyone go in the same line we shorten the interval you know a lot of people were were a bit discouraged from all the weights and the the pop-ups in the lineups 
if you're still, if you haven't had COVID and you're, uh, you know, you have had two doses of vaccine, you're over the age of 50 or 60, you have medical issues, go get your third dose because there is some prote- protection there from mm-hmm. getting COVID. There's a significant rise in protection from getting hospitalized and you're the highest risk group of hospitalization. And those people who are the highest risk, even those who are unvaccinated with medical conditions, those who are immunocompromised, there is testing for people to link them to therapy. Therapy is available in most centers in Ontario, but the first step is getting tested. So, you know, making sure if you do develop symptoms and you're in those high risk groups, know that you are, know where you can get your test, know how to talk to a healthcare provider around te- around treatment because it is underutilized now and it does need to be utilized in those highest risk people. Last thing I got, and I need about 45 seconds. Are we getting any better? Are we any further along? You've, you've been a real champion in terms of saying we've got to vaccinate the world. We've got to provide vaccines, get them to where the fires still rage in the developing world. Are we do, I, we got a lot of balls in the air in our country. Are we doing any better than we were eight weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, look, donations have gone out through COVAX. Uh, you know, the South Africa has basically re-engineered the Moderna vaccine, which gives them the ability to now produce it on site, which is probably going to be the biggest thing more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So there is there is hope for sure. But, uh, you know, again, our ability to keep patents on these vaccines is probably going to be the biggest impediment moving forward. And that's really where the pressures have to be. Yeah, and the United States hasn't uh, hasn't hasn't let up on that either, and and uh, Joe Biden and, and the U.S. Uh, should and the CDC should do that. Love our chats. You're a great guest. Thank you for bringing it straight uh, to our listeners. I really appreciate the time. No worries. All the best, Greg. Our next guest, uh, uh, well, we'll see how far we could push him, but his column uh, reads: Canadians were pushed too far, then they pushed back. Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun. It sounds like a Liam Neeson movie that I could have watched on my flight yesterday, but okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. Welcome back, sir. And, you know, we've talked a lot about what's going on in the U.S., and I know you have firsthand experience now. And and I think, you know, whatever the U.S. state is, I know some still have tighter restrictions than others. I think they found a bit more of a balance than we have here. And when we talk about what's going on in Canada right now, whether it's the extraordinary stuff that happened yesterday, really unprecedented in our nation's history, or, or anything that came a couple of weeks before with the convoy, uh, the people entrenched in Ottawa, or the, the tens of thousands of people who just were day protesters, showed up for a few hours. I think this could have all been avoided if we just had a slightly more moderate approach. You know, we've got left-leaning Democratic politicians who say, okay, everybody, get your vaccine, get your booster when it's available, wear your masks. But then they're still okay to ease the mandates because they realize, you know, if one or two people just don't want to do this sort of thing, we don't need to fire them. We don't need to go nuts about it. We don't need to destroy our society over Mm -hmm. it. Just chill out. That's kind of where we're at right now in Canada, Greg. It's really frustrating talking about bringing in the Emergencies Act because really 9% of people don't want to get vaccinated. So can we, you know, can we drop these mandates and stuff? I mean, really look back at the situation we're at and I feel like we've just been so unreasonable with people. We haven't given people breathing room. I, I agree with you there. I've somehow gained a foothold in New York City because I've put a couple, um, you know, moms on before and some education advocates talking about that really from the beginning of last fall going into Labor Day. But, you know, Anthony, what a story it was to have the Super Bowl there with 71,000 maskless right. people. I would tell you they didn't put the TV coverage would be different than what I saw on the Jumbotron. There wasn't one person wearing a mask in the stands. They did, And they sure didn't put one person wearing a mask on television there, uh, on, on the Jumbotron, I should say. And then you can imagine people are saying, uh, who live in California, let me get this straight. 71,000 people are there. It's it's pure, well, without the, the other part, hedonism, if you will, at least when it comes to masks. Right. Beyond that, it's not hedonism. But but I'm, I'm masking up my five-year-old, and he yeah. or she will have to wear a mask, not just in class, but outdoors at recess. California and New York have these strict, I know you know this, have these strict yeah. outdoor mask mandates for recess and, and, and physical activity. Oh, my goodness. It's so wrong. It is just bizarre, I know. And, and Ontario, when you average it out, has had some of the worst lockdowns really in the free world, period. But there are certain places that have had specific rules uh, worse than we have. I'm glad we're not forcing the outdoor masks uh, on kids sort of generally all across Ontario. I, I will say we saw in, in Ottawa and some other cities counter-protests 
to the to the freedom convoy uh, to those protests. And I support the right to protest. So I, I while I support lifting the mandates, I got no problem with people taking to the streets and seeing truckers go home. But one thing that's kind of concerning, I, I, I noticed the one big one that made its way down the streets of Ottawa to say truckers go home. It wasn't just to say, please leave our city, which I think a lot of people would, would say is reasonable. But you have these 200 people who were all outside, all masked outdoors, all holding up signs, also saying, keep the mandate. So yes, it was an anti-trucker protest, but it was also a keep these mask rules in seemingly, I don't know, in perpetuity, keep these mandates in for, I don't know, however long. So they'd be upset with the announcement Doug Ford made yesterday where we're going to move towards personal choice. And, and that's concerning to me. When Justin Trudeau does what he does yesterday, um, it just seems patently obvious um, that it's unprecedented. But I said this earlier, if you take unprecedented action regarding your kids or, or your marriage, it, 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 like it's it some, somewhere steps were missed along the way. I don't know how anyone could argue otherwise, even if they support, even if they do right. invoking this federal act. You can't then play the card that that there weren't a lot of screw ups along the way over the last three weeks to get us there. No, absolutely. Very good point. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is speaking out against this. Canadian Constitution Foundation saying this doesn't really meet the threshold and it's unclear what you're going to do with all of this. And, and, you know, Greg, there's a lot of people saying what will and what won't happen. But let's be honest, there's no such thing as an expert in this scenario because it's never been done before. So we're hearing a lot of reassurances that, oh, this doesn't suspend civil liberties. This doesn't criminalize protests. How do you know? This is all there's no court order involved in all of this. So there's a lot of things uh, seizing people's banking, uh, which uh, Christia Freeland talked about how she's now empowered to do that uh, for people. It doesn't require a court order. Usually it does. Police would have to go and, and, and hit a sort of judicial threshold. There's no court order required. This is all really up to the personal discretion and whims of, of the prime minister's office and Justin Trudeau and Christia Freeland. The financial stuff is, is really concerning because based on the wording of it, it, it really does seem like, oh, it's not just about you know, seizing the bank accounts of the three people involved, but any of the tens of thousands of people who, who showed up at the protest, the more sort of broad day protest, they could arguably consider uh, suspect in this. They could be dragnetted into this. And like I said, there's no one out there who can tell me that's not the case because this hasn't been tried and tested before. Anthony Fury, Toronto Sun, our guest on Toronto Today. What do you think this does for our state of tolerance for protests mm. going forward? Many people have made the point uh, there wasn't a ton done about uh, First Nations blockades in February of 2020. We've talked now, admittedly, they didn't quite mess with the infrastructure um, and economic realities uh, and, and, you know, where and, and health of our country for as long. Um, and neither did any, no anti-black racism protests did that either. So that's true. Right. But I, I brought this up over the weekend to some of my U.S. and U.K. friends because they're fascinated by what's happening in Canada right now. I said, what if it was nurses and healthcare workers brought blocking the Ambassador Bridge who wanted better pay, who wanted better working conditions? Ooh, we'd be we'd be really quick to say, well, you can't donate money to them. You can't, you, you know, we're going to move right. you guys out of there, even if you're fighting for sick pay. Even, that was a huge issue last April. And that one, eh, you know, Ford government gave them a little, little few table scraps, but they really didn't fulfill what healthcare workers and, and essential workers were asking for. What if it was healthcare workers blocking the bridges? We'd be we'd, we'd, we'd have a totally different public reaction. Yeah, and these are all valid points and questions because this has not been done before. Now it's suddenly been done. Are we going to normalize this? Are we going to have a conversation after where we, we tighten the rules around allowing it to happen? Because we know the premiers had to be consulted. What does that mean? Well, Jason Kenney fulsomely saying, absolutely no, do not do this. Several other premiers as well. So it's not like that consultation stopped Trudeau from doing it. It doesn't have to go to the courts. Uh, so perhaps a precedent has been set here. And, and it's interesting. I mean, Greg, you're totally right that the ambassador bridge issue, the border issues, they do cause trade issues. Uh, much more serious economic ones. But when it comes to the situation in Ottawa, I mean, let's not forget, this has all been surprisingly peaceful for this stuff going on for weeks. The only really violent incident we had was a vehicular ramming aimed towards the protesters that happened in Winnipeg. Four people sent to hospital. Uh, bizarrely, it has not been condemned by Justin Trudeau. What's going to happen for similar events? Because, you know, this is a, a major, I think, public nuisance to the people in Ottawa. But again, it has not been a violent situation uh, to date.
I got about 45 seconds here. Uh, is there any any reaction that Steven Del Duca or Andrea Horvath can have over the next month to lifting restrictions that benefits them politically? We know all three parties are playing <laughs> politics. I don't blame them for doing that. It's their job in part to get reelected and, and have as many MPs surrounding them as possible. But I don't know where I don't know where the, the opposition parties go with being critical of restrictions being lifted. Because they always just want more. I've always said the most balanced response in Canada has been the only NDP province in Canada, John Horgan's B.C. government. And I, I just wish Andrew Horvath and Jagmeet Singh and others could say, be more like the NDP, which would mean have a more balanced approach. Uh, instead, they've, they've not followed uh, the one NDP government. It's, it's been kind of frustrating. All they ever want is more restrictions, tighter, harder, less forgiving. I don't know how they're going to proceed. Anthony, loved having, having you on and a great column in the sun. Thank you for the time. Thank you, sir. Uh, Marcus Kolga uh, for, uh, from uh, disinfowatch.org. Nobody better to talk to about uh, Russian politics and uh, a lot of the uh, social, socio and geopolitical aspects of what's happening right now uh, with many Russians assembling arms and troops on the Ukraine border right now. Uh, Marcus, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thanks for making the time for me as always. Thanks so much for having me on, Greg. Um, there was a lot of talk about whether Putin would wait on this because of the Beijing Olympics being on. Is that seen as is that a thing that there's some kind of affront uh, the Chinese would feel if they're like, hey, ne if next Monday is good for you at 10 a.m., go right ahead. How does that land? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin in the past has shown uh, uh, an interest in uh, in starting international conflicts uh, under the cover of the Olympics. He he did this uh, in 2014, right after Russia hosted the uh, the Sochi Olympics. He did this in 2008 when he attacked Georgia, um, right uh, during the Olympics as well. So he sort of has a history of of doing this. Um, you know, while the, while the world is has fixed its gaze on the, those on the games, and he he acts. Um, and uh, I think there's been mass speculation, quite frankly, by all Russia and Kremlin watchers that um, he would probably prefer to uh, start any sort of, uh, uh, if he's going to start a war, that he'd do it during the, the Beijing Olympics. But you're right. I mean, he had a, a meeting with, uh, with President Xi uh, at the start, of the, uh, start of the games in Beijing. They had a, um, uh, a long talk and issued an eight-page statement in which um, China uh, uh, gave its support to, to Russia. There's talk that, that China um, will, said that they would support a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, whether that happens during the Olympics or not, we don't know. But uh, it does seem that if Vladimir Putin is going to act, and it seems increasingly likely that he will, then uh, it's, it's probably going to happen. Uh, within the, the next seven to 10 days, uh, whether it happens before the Olympics end or just afterwards, uh, we don't know. Marcus Kolga, our guest on Toronto Today. Um, this surprised a lot of people that the Russian parliament voted in favor of asking Putin, recognize two more republics, Donetsk and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine as independent bodies. Now, I don't need to tell you um, for Russia or otherwise, that oftentimes dictators don't listen to the rest of their government or their parliaments. They don't have to. Um, what will Putin do with this recommendation from the Russian parliament? Uh, well, you know, Vladimir Putin has uh, doesn't have too much time for for parliament or democracy. Um, so you're right. I mean, it's it's entirely likely that he would uh, ignore uh, the the voice of the of any Russian legislators. Um, you know, it's been Vladimir Putin's goal uh, for the past 22 years, and he has been in power for nearly a quarter century. Um, to uh, recreate the Soviet Union. He has repeatedly stated that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was for, for him uh, one of the greatest geopolitical uh, disasters of the, of the previous century. Um, it's one of these commitments that he has used in order to maintain power. Um, let's not forget that under his rule, Russia has really uh, you know, stagnated um, Russian incomes have declined uh, precipitously over the past 10 years. Um, I just read a statistic that one in three hospitals in Russia doesn't even have running water. And so when one Russians three. are one in three, this is a statistic from uh, Radio Free Europe. Uh, the situation in Russia for Russians isn't great. 
Um, so when their cupboards are bare, um, this is an old what the Soviets used to say, if the cupboards are bare, the, you, you create a propaganda spectacle so that their, the attention of Russians is drawn to their televisions. And this is exactly what he is doing with uh, the situation right now uh, in, in Ukraine, um, trying to play on Russian uh, uh, nostalgia for the Soviet Union and has sort of promised to recreate that, that Soviet-era glory for, for Russia and create that spectacle. So um, that's, uh, that's what a lot of this uh, is about. It's about uh, Vladimir Putin himself trying to maintain and consolidate power by creating a propaganda spectacle at home. We send uh, we send lethal weapons to help Ukraine. That was I think that jarred a lot of people yesterday. That that's how the prime minister described them as such. But um, yeah. th- as he described, we've previously sent non-lethal weapons, and Justin Trudeau was kind of derided for that. Well, you know, we're sending them basically equipment um, that that you know construction workers could use. But sending weapons uh, to defend Ukraine's sovereignty is seems to be getting a lot of applause from not just the the you know the Canadian community but the international community they they need some help here yeah you're you're absolutely right i mean that initial commitment to send some night vision goggles which are you know obviously very useful um you know some gloves and and stuff like that's i think that's great for for the ukrainian uh, armed forces but lethal weapons are of course uh lethal defensive weapons i should say are are much better and uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, Canada's yeah. commitment. I think they made seven point eight million dollars worth of lethal uh, defensive uh, uh, weapons. Uh, it's not a lot, uh, but you know it, it's primarily symbolic. But it does now uh, put Canada, uh, and it does align uh, Canada with our allies. You know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and in, in Europe, the United Kingdom, the United States, and many other allies already committed to sending defensive lethal weapons. Canada was a bit of an outlier. And so this announcement uh, yesterday afternoon, I think is, is certainly has been welcomed by, by the government of Ukraine and our allies. And I think a lot of people who do, quite frankly, understand who Vladimir Putin is and that, uh, you know, diplomacy, while, you know, is, is welcome. And if it, if it would work with Putin, that it would be great. But uh, quite frankly, mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin only understands one thing, and that's power. And so sending defensive, uh, lethal defensive weapons is, is a good step. Marcus Kolga is our guest, of course, uh, from disinfowatch.org. Um, do, you, do we need a good relationship with Russia? Does Canada uh, suffer? Uh, clearly, there's a lot of talk that, uh, well, if we don't have a good relationship with China, and right now we don't, um, that there's obviously economic uh, consequences. Do we need to have a good one with Russia to, to help us economically? Well, that's a good question. I think we need to sort of step back and, and take a look at what that means. Why would why do we need such a great uh, relationship with Russia? Um, you know, trade-wise, uh, we export more goods uh, annually to countries like Botswana uh, than to uh, Russia. Russia is uh, somewhere around number 44 or number 45 on our trade trade list our, uh, as far as exports are concerned. So we, we don't sell a heck of a lot to Russia. There is, of course, the Arctic. Um, but the problem with the Arctic is that Vladimir Putin over the past uh, 10 to 15 years, um, just like he's done on the border with Ukraine, has engaged in a mass military mobilization that isn't getting a heck of a lot of attention. He's built, uh, built or refurbished uh, some 25, 26 uh, bases. A lot of them are strategic bomber bases. He's built new nuclear missile facilities, and he's built all sorts of uh, new super weapons. One of them is a is a high speed nuclear torpedo designed to uh, travel underneath the ice and irradiate Arctic coastlines um, for ten to twenty thousand years with a nuclear warhead. Um, and so this doesn't sound like a pardon, doesn't look like he's behaving like a partner who wants to engage in constructive um, diplomacy. Um, I should also add that last spring, Vladimir Putin's government laid claim to all of the resources underneath the Arctic Sea right up until Canada's coastline. And we know mm-hmm. that he's, his government's strategy is to engage in further aggressive resource imperialism. And so when you put all these things together, um, you know, a good relationship would be wonderful, but it doesn't seem that that's the kind of thing that Vladimir Putin is looking for. And so I think that Canada would be better off uh, prepared as far as our security is concerned uh, with addressing the realities 
of what is happening in the Arctic and taking measures to deter Vladimir Putin from acting any more aggressively because we've seen what he's done over and over again in Europe. Last one for you, Marcus. I know you and I talked so much in the summer about um, what what our federal government um, didn't do, but we weren't the only ones uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I think the, the yeah. Biden administration handled this um, treme- cataclysmically badly. Um, and I, I think there's people out there worried right now that uh, President Biden's stepping in in an, an attempt almost to negotiate or or appease uh, Vladimir Putin here. I just don't think that's the way to 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 handle it. That's not there's no diplomatic road to go down here. It's just, hey, you step into Ukraine, um, there's yeah. gonna, you're going to regret it. That's the only appeasement that I think is the logical one. And, and that's how you handle bullies. You, you've got to stand up to them. Yeah, you, when you when you when you have a, a schoolyard bully, what he understands is when you punch him in the nose. Um, he he doesn't he doesn't stop bullying. If you give him your lunch, over the money lunch money once, he's going to ask for it the next day. <laughs> well, and we've seen this over and over again. You know, in two thousand seven, he engaged in the in the first uh, government sponsored cyber attacks against Estonia. Tried to destabilize Estonia. We did nothing. Two thousand eight in Georgia during the Olympics, he attacked Georgia. We did nothing. 2014, he attacks he attacks Crimea. We laid some sanctions, but essentially we did nothing. In in 2016, he un- tried to undermine the uh, U.S. U.S. democracy during the U.S. presidential election. We did nothing. We continue to do nothing. We continue to believe that this guy is going to listen. And every new president, every new prime minister, every new chancellor in Germany comes along and says he'll listen to me. He'll listen to diplomacy. Vladimir Putin doesn't do diplomacy. He does guns, murder, and war. That's how he acts, and we need to start recognizing that if we want to defend our democracies and the current situation, the current Western order. Follow Marcus Kolga on Twitter, at Kolga. Smart dude, knows what he's talking about with this, uh, and it is uh, the biggest international story uh, on the landscape right now is what happens uh, in Ukraine. Thank you very much for making time for me. I uh, appreciate it as always. Anytime, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Toronto Today presents Chatterbox. Chatterbox. A neat, quick look at the stories you're already talking about. Is this something that you just want to go ahead and ask me because I'll give you an answer, right? Not even close, but... Or when this is all over, you'll certainly be talking about... I hope I'm not being cross-examined here. You feel like that? No, not really. I'm not going to be ignored! Here we go. Hope you can handle the curveballs. I, I really don't. I, I, what are we doing? I don't know what we're yelling about! 7.36 on this Tuesday morning. Uh, happy to welcome in, uh, like I said, I think these are two heavy hitters. Got a lot of respect for both these guys. He'll host the agenda tonight at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Uh, what, a, what a great appetizer for Canada, USA uh, tomorrow night. And I want to remind people that's tomorrow night. I think I misspoke and said it's tonight. It's hard when the Olympics are 14 hours away, 13, 13. I think it's difficult, uh, but they're played tomorrow night. How do I know this? The aunt of uh, Canadian defenseman Aaron Ambrose Number 23 in our hearts, number one, whatever. But number 23 uh, was listening to the show and said, it's tomorrow night, man. So uh, I've got it right. Thank you very much, Aaron Ambrose's family. But he'll host the agenda leading into that game tomorrow night. Steve Pakin uh, from the agenda. Can you brew a pot of coffee? Can you be up for that game? Can you stay up till 145 and watch our ladies? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's a tremendous uh, commitment. Patrick Brown, Mayor Brampton, big hockey fan in his own right. But listen, I know your household right now. You you take sleep where you can get it. That's a that's a big ask in the Brown household with an eleven ten puck drop, Patrick. It is a challenging time to watch uh, watch the Olympics, <laughs> um, but of, of course you're going to cheer on Team Canada. I uh, I only wish. Uh, uh, on the men's side, that we had the NHLers there because it, it just seems like it's not a complete Olympics when you don't have the best of the best. I know they play in like an hour, and I don't a half an hour, and I don't feel the energy pulsing for a Canada-China round of sixteen qualifying men's hockey match. But we'll do our best. We'll do our best to uh, to uh, you know build up uh, build up for that. Um, Steve, let's start with uh, Justin Trudeau yesterday. I mean, um, even I'm too young for the FLQ crisis. I'm not saying you are or aren't. 
But this is these are unprecedented times. So Justin Trudeau activates the Emergency Measures Act, something that his dad didn't even have to do. Um, the reaction to that from a historic perspective has some people, in, and you've got this incredible encyclopedic recall of, of how the public's reacted at various times to federal issues. Um, unprecedented is the right word, isn't it? I'm not sure. You know, I am actually old enough to remember this. I was 10 years old when the current prime minister's father brought in the War Measures Act, as it was then called. Uh, since 1988, it's been called the Emergencies Act, something else. But um, you couldn't do the War Measures Act today. you got to remember, back then, there were bombs blowing up in mailboxes all over Quebec. There was a separatist movement that seemed like it wanted to take Quebec out of Canada by violent means, by any means necessary. The British Trade Commissioner had been kidnapped. Uh, a provincial cabinet minister had been kidnapped and killed. And so Pierre Trudeau said, just watch me. And there were tanks in the streets of Montreal. Uh, there were cabinet ministers in the Canadian capital uh, who um, had their children uh, escorted to school by Canadian soldiers. There were soldiers, armed soldiers in, uh, in the homes of Canadian cabinet ministers, making sure everything was OK. We're a long way from that. So uh, it, this is certainly unprecedented in the last 50 years, but the War Measures Act was 51 years ago, and that was a lot more serious than this. Mayor Brown, it feels you and I have talked about restrictions before and how we, we so value our, our freedom here in, in Canada. Uh, and we advocated uh, for people who've had, you know, eight generations of families here and, and for new Canadians as well. It's the, one of the best things about what we do here in this country for each other. But this one, as you know, that this feels like just, you, you know, you're at the gym, you're, you're, you're trying to bench press. And this, this is someone kind of adding another, uh, another set of weights to the mix in terms of what we can and what we cannot do, it feels like. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say, first of all, I've got a lot of sympathy for the the cries uh, and the push to to reopen. Um, I do believe the science and the data dictates that, that we can get back to normal sooner than um, some of the uh, politicians are, are, are comfortable with in their stated reopening timelines. Having said that, the way we change governments in Canada is at the ballot box, and some of the aims of this convoy are incompatible um, with that. What I struggle with in terms of this announcement yesterday is I am perplexed how with the existing tools that government has, they haven't been able to handle this protest and say, this is the place, this is the location where you can have your peaceful protest. And when it infringes the rights of others, um, it's not permitted when you're causing disruptions to the economic uh, functioning of the country and the uh, blockades and bridges. I struggle to understand how they don't have the tools to already deal with that. And let me give you an example. You know, if there was an incident in Peel Region, uh, and we've dealt with um, serious gun and gang problems, and I've seen the police come out, and they've got incredibly efficient tactical units that uh, disarm the situation. And, you know, I see this going on for, what is it, 18 days now, and it just it makes you scratch your head how given the existing tools the government has, and the government has many, many existing tools, how they have not been able to adequately deal with this crisis. That's the voice of Patrick Brown. He's the mayor of Brampton. Steve Pakin is with us as well from TVO's The Agenda, which you can see at 8 o'clock tonight. Uh, Steve, mandates getting lifted here, and it's all, God, all this is uh, is so, you know, interrelated. Um with with provinces lifting mandates, I don't know how we could make the case that the protesters felt, well, nobody's pushing us out yet. It's day three, it's day four, it's day five, it's day... I mean, you get pretty emboldened. If you're installing hot tubs in the middle of streets in Ottawa, you're empowered and emboldened, and you're puffing your chest out a little bit. And it feels like the timing of the protests have clearly had an influence on some of what was... Even what we saw Doug Ford announce here. I don't know how emotionally these people would feel otherwise. They feel like it's made the difference. Well, don't forget the bouncy castles. There have been bouncy castles, too. <laughs> and um, yeah. I think, you know what, let me let me jump in on what Mayor Brown had to say. And I, 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 think, uh, I think his worship made a good point there. Uh, we have also had the, the advantage, I guess, in the city of Toronto of the fact that it happened in Ottawa first, we saw what not to do, and authorities mm -hmm. in the Ontario capital city were able to be much more prepared and, and get their gauntlets set up before the protesters could come in and take over the downtown or take over the, the precinct around Queen's Park. So that was an advantage we had. We had that ad advanced knowledge of what went down um, in the Canadian capital, and, and we used that to our good advantage. Um, you know, only the people who are sitting at the cabinet table can know for sure, Greg, about whether or not 
what's happening in Ottawa had any influence on their decision-making. They insisted not. The premier insisted that you know, the numbers, the science alone, allowed him to make the decisions that he uh, announced yesterday. Uh, but, of course, they're the only ones who know for sure. So uh, either you take them at their, at their word or you don't. It's up to them. Mayor Brown, that, that's something Steve makes a, a great point there about what the GTA has done. Um, the, the mayors have seemed organized. They have seemed ready. Uh, the, the police have obviously uh, played a, a role here as well. There's been um, a, a good dichotomy. I know, and it's been documented, Mayor Tory said this, they can't influence or direct, um, you know, officials to enforce the law or, or not enforce the law. But there just seems to be, a you know, a symbiotic relationship to the point where not too many protesters have looked at the GTA and said, well, that's a good place to set up shop. Let's take our trucks here or let's come into this community. Which is more of a reason why it's perplexing that we have this ongoing situation in Ottawa. And if you want to give another example of how the situation was was, was disarmed on Ambassador Bridge. And mm-hmm. you know, why is that not possible in in, in Ottawa? And you know, without these drastic measures. And so, yeah, you know, I, I get why. You know, there's a legitimate conversation happening right now. Is is this an overreaction, given the fact existing tools would probably be um, adequate enough to, to deal with this if there was more of a political will? Steve Pakins, our guest, uh, Mayor Patrick Brown as well on Chatterbox. Um, lifting the vaccine mandates, as, as Premier Ford did yesterday. We're going to have a lot of debates, aren't we, Stephen? I know your show is going to be uh, dug deep into the weeds on this over the next four months. You're, you're a tremendous uh, political animal for diving into this stuff. Do the, A lot of people will say, well, that's Mayor Ford, or sorry, that's Premier Ford, and he's trying to do this, and he's trying to do that to get reelected. But I don't, I don't know what the response is for a um, a public that wants to open up a little bit. I I think it's a tough game plan, and and it's going to take a lot of uh, hours of consultation and and decision making for not just Stephen Del Duca, but but you know a, a veteran leader in Andrea Horvath to say this is how we counterbalance that. We don't want to look like we're anti this and anti that. If the numbers and and the and the science is turning in one direction, we can't be opposed to that. Well, let's be blunt about this, Greg, and and I'm not saying this to sound cynical, but this is just simply the reality of the political calendar. We are a little over 100 days away from the next Ontario election. And what that means is that every single decision that will be made, probably going back a couple of months, but certainly going forward over the next 100 plus days, every single decision will be made with a view to, does this help or hurt our re-election chances? And, and you can understand that. I mean, you, no politician of any you know, brains at all is going to make a decision that will automatically try to torpedo their chances of being reelected. Now, the question becomes, will the decisions be consistent with science? Will the decisions be consistent with good public policy? If they are, you can't blame them if it also happens to help their reelection chances at the same time. Uh, but again, the, the, the decisions have to be consistent with what's good public policy. And as long as they're going in that direction, the public will make its judgment on June the 2nd about whether it was a good or a bad decision. I guess that's how I see it anyway. Mayor Brown, you've seen this your your whole existence, obviously, um, in politics, is that it's amazing what people um, can forget, if you will, uh, a year or so ago. I remember last April, and, and you were very outspoken the morning after that Friday uh, stay-at-home order. You said you, you took a picture of your son. You were walking near a closed-off playground, and hours later that day, that playground was reopened, and to the point as well where the police were urged um, to, to in, in essence, stop cars, ask them where they're going, and the cops, to uh, almost to a, a man and to a woman, said, we won't do that for the province of Ontario. So it, it's, <laughs> a, you know, we'll be a year from that, about a month and a half from now, and it's amazing. If people end up getting what they want close to election time, that might influence how they vote. Yeah, it was certainly the certainly the government has has made some mistakes in the handling of of the pandemic, um, but I think it's the opposition parties that are in a real bind right now because they mm-hmm. uh, want to criticize the government on the reopening, they want to criticize the government on ending the the vaccine mandates, but their problem is, is they've said throughout the pandemic, listen to the science, listen to the data, and now they're in a situation where uh, the public health officials are saying it's time. Um, it's illogical to have some of these measures when the science and the data doesn't dictate dictate that they're needed. And so I think they're in a real bind. They want to be against Doug Ford. They want to be against this reopening, 
But now for the first time, they're on the opposite side of public health. You know, when when they were criticizing the government for some of the mistakes, like not putting vaccines in hotspots or, you know, closing outdoor recreation Mm -hmm. when there's no basis for that, they were on the right side of public health. Right now, public health, the the data, the science, all says Ontario can join the rest of the world in a safe and responsible reopening. And so I don't know what they're going to do. And I think if they oppose this just for the sake of opposing the government, simply because it's a different political uh, perspective, Mm Um, they're going to be the ones that, that face the repercussions from the voters. Yeah, and that's so well put. And, and you were the one in the spring saying, we're on fire here. We need vaccines here. Uh, we need we need sick pay for our workers. Uh, that issue I mentioned, uh, it felt like a few table scraps got got pushed out with, a, you know, with three days of, uh, of sick pay. And in a pre-vaccination world, especially when vaccines were hard to come by, um, you know, people were getting sick. They were being put in untenable positions uh, in their employment. I got to leave it there. Thank you guys so much for your insight, for your opinion. Uh, great respect for both of you. And, and thanks so much for doing this and thank you so much have a good day there's steve Steve bacon from the agenda see him tonight eight o'clock and mayor patrick brown from uh, the city of brampton thanks again for listening to toronto today we're back with a live show tomorrow on wednesday february the 16th hope you can join us for at least some of that show and if not you can find us right here where you downloaded the podcast toronto today and that's usually available around 10 o'clock 10 30 every single morning monday through friday thanks so much for listening take care